Hey, before we get into this episode today, I just wanted to let you know that we would greatly appreciate if you liked, subscribed, left a review, five stars, five testicles, whatever you want to call them on this podcast. That will help this podcast rank higher in search results so that in the future, anybody who's searching for resources when they've just been diagnosed or have just become a survivor or is a caregiver, they can find this podcast more easily and listen to your stories. Thank you so much. And let's get into the episode. The stories shared on It Takes Balls are unique to the individual sharing. Always speak with your trusted medical provider for treatment options specific to you. Welcome back to It Takes Balls, presented by Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation. Today, I'm joined by associate professor and board-certified urologist at UCSD and adjunct professor at UT Southwestern, focusing in genitourinary cancers. Dr. Aditya Bragodia, thank you so much for being here. Steven, thanks so much for having me. It's a real honor. It's, it's a great show, and the advocacy work that you guys do is absolutely incredible. Thank you so much. One thing that I failed to mention that I did write down here is that you also are the co-host of a of a podcast of your own, if you want to talk about that briefly. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's a podcast called Backtable Urology. It's largely physician-facing, but I think there is uh, quite a bit of good educational content for patients as well. It's, it's been a really fun project. Um, we've grown and, and have an excellent team. So thanks for highlighting that. Oh, no problem. So today we're going to be talking about the long-term toxicities of testicular cancer and treatment, which, you know, as someone who has is almost to three years survivorship, I mean, this is something that's really hitting home for me because, you know, I, as we mentioned before this, I'm dealing with a little bit of brain fog still. I don't know if that's related or if I'm just getting dumber. Um, <laughs> Um, you know, but these are things that, that people are concerned about because largely testicular cancer is a disease of survivors. Absolutely. And, and you're spot on, you know, our, our treatments for localized disease, including removal of the testicle, of course, to more advanced stage disease that require either chemotherapy or further surgery or radiation. You know, the more and more we learn about this disease with modern testis cancer treatment, which is not necessarily massively evolved over the last 50 years, we understand that there's short-term side effects, intermediate-term side effects, and, you know, long-term side effects. And, you know, happy to kind of run through those uh, across the, the treatment spectrum, if you will. Yeah. So before we, we get into those kinds of things, I mean, I don't think we've talked on this podcast with a provider about the staging necessarily. So if somebody has just found this podcast, they've just been recently diagnosed, there's different stages to all cancers, but let's talk specifically about testicular cancer and what each stage kind of means. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, first thing, I think it's worth mentioning that there's no stage four in testicular cancer. That essentially means non-curable and really across all disease states, even when cancer cells have spread to other parts of the body, uh, there's still a possibility and a real possibility for cure. Simplistically, I think the easiest way to think about it is stage one means basically you're confined to the testicle. Stage two typically means that you have retroperitoneal lymph nodes. That's the first place that testis cancer typically tends to spread. The testicles actually begin at the level of the kidneys. They descend into the scrotum shortly before we're born. And that path of descent is where testis cancer cells typically end up spreading. And then stage three disease is essentially disease that has gone beyond the retroperitoneum, most typically to the lungs, though it can go to the liver, to the bone, to the brain, and other less common parts of the body. So with these different stages, and as a provider knowing the 
toxicities that we'll talk about. Um, I mean, does that kind of inform the treatment plan for people, the staging, and then, you know, their quality of life long-term? A hundred percent. And, you know, since testis cancer is so curable, really across disease states, it's absolutely mandatory to get the staging right, to get the correct diagnosis and extent of disease before we treat or many times don't treat. And I would go further to say, especially for patients with stage one disease or disease confined to the testicle, one of the real pitfalls in, in testis cancer management among lower volume centers is actually overstaging and over treating patients. So in other words, patients that were destined to be cured by removal of the testicle alone will oftentimes get chemotherapy or get radiation or get further surgery, which they didn't need and which they're exposed to the toxicities of. So let's talk about those toxicities. I mean, I'm looking at a slide here from a presentation you gave. Uh, it mentions emotional, general body effects, reproductive system. So wherever you think is the best place to, to jump in, let's go. Yeah, I think that the best place to start is actually at the level of the testicle. So, you know, the testicle actually does two things simply. It makes testosterone and it makes sperm. And uh, many times testicular cancer actually occurs in the context of what we call testicular dysgenesis syndrome, which is some combination of geno-environmental insults that ultimately leads to a state that is predisposed to forming cancers. So there can be abnormal sperm production and there can be abnormal testicular uh, testosterone production in a man that's been diagnosed with uh, testicular cancer. And if you actually check testosterone levels after removal of the testicle, after orchiectomy, from a pure laboratory standpoint, about 11 to 20% of those patients would actually have some degree of testicular dysfunction. It's, uh, it's not always translating into symptomatic low testosterone, which oftentimes manifests as decrease in libido or sexual desire, decreased energy, increase in fat, decrease in muscle mass, and then anxiety and depression. But it does exist in a proportion of patients. Then going down the line, effects of low testosterone are fairly pronounced throughout the body, and they could include... Um, a predisposition to say, for instance, osteoporosis or the way that we metabolize lipids like cholesterol, for instance, there can be abdominal obesity that occurs. You can have hot flashes or palpitations, body hair can decrease, and then there can be emotional impact. Um, and we'll, and we'll dig into this a bit later in terms of depression, reduced sense of well-being, a low self-esteem, and sometimes even poor concentration and drive. So just purely from a testosterone perspective, it's not like a foregone conclusion that a patient after testis cancer removal will have these symptomatic low T states, but it can happen. And the provider should be inquiring about these, um, about these various different phenomenon. Yeah. Um, I had my, I didn't have my testosterone checked. Uh, I think I had to ask for it actually, but, um, one of the things, you know, I, I have abdominal obesity, shout out to my sugar eating, um, maybe also my cancer. Um, 
and my concentration isn't so good, which my testosterone, I think this year is when I finally had it checked about three years out and it is in the low end of normal. So like, when do you become concerned about the testosterone level, even if it's in the normal range? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a combination of symptoms and laboratory evaluation. So first things first, you definitely want to have your testosterone level checked at least twice in the morning uh, on two separate occasions. And then it's important to have an actual intake for symptoms. So the normal range for testosterone can be anywhere from about 200 to a thousand. Now patient A may have a testosterone of 250 and they're energetic, you know, very uh, high libido, good sexual function, fantastic muscle mass. And you remove a testicle and they go down to, to say 225 or 200, they may have a significant impact. Person B may camp out at a thousand. One of their testicles gets removed and they're now down to 800 and their numbers are still high, but they could also have a dramatic impact in terms of symptoms. So it's important to check it, to recheck it, to look at not only the lab numbers, but the symptoms. And then testosterone replacement therapy, especially in the context of testis cancer, especially for younger people that may or, or may still be interested in having children, that any type of replacement be done under the guidance of a urologist or an endocrinologist or somebody that understands this disease or an oncofertility specialist, because simply put, if you give external testosterone, that's to tell the remaining testicle it doesn't need to make testosterone and that can actually worsen the whole situation in some ways. That's totally oversimplifying, but it's, it's complicated. It requires lab assessment. It requires symptom assessment and it requires a professional to manage it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it does sound like it's definitely complicated. Um, were there any other of those things that maybe I that didn't send out to me that other than my, cause I was just listening to my abdominal obesity, but I mean, what are some of the, things that you see people with most often? Yeah, honestly, Stephen, many times it's a long game type of things, like a low level decrease in testosterone predisposing to say like diabetes 20 years down the way or osteoporosis 20 years down the way. And the point being that it's important to have a primary physician that's also involved with um, management of side effects of, of uh, testicle removal. So they're kind of checking your cholesterol to make sure that it's staying in a good range annually, that they're checking the blood pressure to make sure it's not creeping up annually, hemoglobin A1C. So many times it's not a something that you would feel like I'm putting on weight or my libido's gone. It could be screening for conditions that you may be predisposed to. Oh, no. Okay, so we have a question here from the testicular cancer uh, support group, which um, I'll keep everybody anonymous, but he says, how effed should I expect my cardiovascular system to be long-term? Like heart attack in 20 years, 30 years, even with a good exercise regimen and diet, there's not much to do long-term to avoid this is my understanding. And that kind of, you know, I asked that question there because you mentioned the long game. Yeah, so... So specifically looking at cardiac dysfunction, if you thought that the testosterone part was complicated, here we go. So first of all, there's going to be the predisposition to cardiac disease from the low T. And that can actually be largely mitigated with, um, you know, management of cholesterol, management of blood pressure, and then management of symptomatic low T. 
should it occur. But we really start worrying about increased risks of cardiac dysfunction when we layer in chemotherapy and radiation for advanced disease once cancer cells have spread. So there's a lot of different kind of mechanistic hypotheses for why this occurs. Most commonly, it's due to endothelial damage to the lining of the blood vessels from the cisplatin, actually, or um, free radicals that are formed by the radiation therapy is a hypothesis. But suffice to say that those can be ultimately predisposing to things like heart attacks, cardiac dysfunction. And while we see these things, and it took a while for us to even make those observations that, hey, people that are getting testicular cancer and treated with platinum-based chemotherapy, fast forward 30 years, they're having strokes and so forth at a higher rate than would have been expected. So it's something that we're kind of coming in tune with earlier. Um, And again, I think that preventative aspect of it is very, very real. You know, if we can prevent obesity, which occurs in 30% of U.S. adults, if we can identify those changes in cholesterol, which are risk factors, if we can make sure that our patients aren't smoking, if we can keep the blood pressure after under control, so these are modifiable risk factors, then we can mitigate many of those, you know, minimize many of those long-term heart-related side effects. Mm, You're scaring me. I need to eat better, it sounds like, and exercise more. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there are things that are outside of our control, then there are things that are in our control. Then, you know, diet, exercise, seeing a doctor, which is, you know, it's, it's not trivial, but it's also pretty doable, especially with Zoom and, you know, telehealth once a year. Hey, doc, I'm feeling good. Can we run through my labs and so forth and blood pressure? And you've kind of checked that box. So, um, you know, it's a big plug to make sure you're staying engaged with the primary care physician. One thing I noticed in that answer is you mentioned uh, like radiation having certain effects and uh, like the cisplatin having certain effects. So kind of talk about if you can, it might be a long elaborate thing. I don't know because you're way smarter than me, but like the, the differences between radiation and chemotherapy, because I don't know that I've heard a lot of TC patients, at least recently getting radiation. You're absolutely right, uh, Stephen. So, you know, going back to the staging. So when you give chemotherapy, that's medication that's going into the veins and throughout the body. And it is highly effective for when you have cancer cells throughout the body. There are scenarios though, where we can, leverage the fact that testis cancer has a predictable pattern of spread from the testicles to the retroperitoneum and then to other parts of the body. So radiation is kind of a local treatment where we're trying to just treat the affected area, for instance, the retroperitoneum. It's mostly an option for patients with stage two, so kind of retroperitoneal seminomas. And um, it's highly effective. That's a good thing. It does have real potential long-term side effects, secondary cancers, and heart disease, which is obviously a bad thing. And then God forbid, if you get radiation but develop cancer cells elsewhere and then subsequently require chemotherapy, when you get both radiation and chemotherapy, then the likelihood of side effects actually really starts increasing exponentially. So as we've started realizing, for instance, that all of our treatments have long-term side effects. We've also, as a testis cancer community, tried to figure out ways to minimize those. 
And I think the radiation is a perfect example where we've actually gone back to the drawing board. And for sometimes patients with stage two non-seminoma, we do surgery to remove lymph nodes in the retroperitoneum. We've typically done that for non-seminoma because radiation is not effective. But then we started realizing, wait, the radiation can have long-term side effects. Why don't we surgically remove the lymph nodes in seminoma patients and see if we can't um, get away from some of those radiation-induced toxicities or chemotherapy-induced toxicities? And just over the last year or so, there's been two clinical trials, one from the U.S., and uh, we were a fourth-highest accruing site, one from, uh, from Germany. And suffice it to say, both of those trials really show that surgical removal of retroperitoneal lymph nodes is a very promising option with good cancer-free recurrence rates and with elimination of those long-term side effects of chemotherapy and radiation. So these are the types of things that are taking place, uh, you know, in the testis cancer community where we want to maintain the cure rates, but we want to do that without, um, you know, hurting, hurting patients in the long term. Yeah. Um, the next slide here has on your presentation has a lot of words that I don't even really know how to pronounce. Uh, oligospermia, baseline risk oligospermia. Did I say that right? What does that mean? Yeah. Yeah. No, you said it perfectly. So, you know, I think maybe you think about like an oligarchy or oligarchy, like back in the day where you have three or four people that, um, that are kind of ruling the roost, so to speak. And oligospermia means you basically have decreased sperm counts. So going back to, you know, the, the two functions of the testicles, testosterone production and sperm production, many times patients, if we checked like a semen analysis or sperm parameters, we would find out that they're either not making a typical number of sperm or the sperm's characteristics like motility or ability to inseminate and fertilize an egg are lower than, than a typical non-testis cancer population. So if you look at, you know, we have kind of criteria, we look at a semen analysis, like how much are they moving? What do they look like? How many are there? And if we look at those criteria, about half of men have decreased fertility based on our standard definitions. About anywhere from 10 to 30% of patients have probably had some fertility issues along the way. But fortunately, after removal of the testicle, about 90% of patients can conceive in kind of the typical way. So the ultimate paternity rates are just a little bit lower than the average U.S. population. I mean, that's great news. In a you know scary topic of talking about the long-term toxicities, knowing that about 90% of men are able to have children is, is great to hear. A, absolutely. B, I also think it's critical that patients are treated at centers that have experience that ask about these questions, because if you have risk factors for having fertility issues, then you should probably discuss sperm banking, for instance, prior to removal of the testicle. So, so these are ways that, um, you know, they're, they're massively impactful for, you know, a patient from a future planning perspective but sometimes if you're not being careful, thoughtful, deliberate, these things can be missed. And obviously once that testicle is out, any opportunity to benefit from sperm protection is, is gone. Kind of drive home the point. Cause it would, it would be more uh, 
beneficial to hear it from you than from me. You mentioned the high volume centers. I mean, that's something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast and it really, really makes a difference as you've mentioned in testicular cancer treatment. Yeah. So maybe I'll just share like two different paths of a patient walking into a high volume center versus a non high volume center. So let's say patient A comes into a high volume center and we say, Hey, looks like you've got a mass consistent with the testis cancer. Let's order your pre-orchitic tumor markers. Let's try to get the staging so we don't have any post-surgical changes on your CT scans of your chest, abdomen, pelvis. Let's inquire about your testosterone production status. Let's check a testosterone. Let's check your symptoms. Let's talk about your fertility. Have you seen an onco fertility specialist? And then let me ask you, do you want a prosthetic placed or not to go into the empty half scrotum, which can be associated with improved self-esteem, decreased senses of loss and shame, et cetera. So that I would say in a nutshell would be a moderately comprehensive first pass, uh, maybe even a little bit beyond that. Hey, did your brother or your dad have testis cancer? If yes, let's have you see a genetic counselor. So that would be, you know, a, a good interaction. Interaction B could be, hey, there's a mass in your testicle. And, and maybe even for the first patient, let's have you see our cancer center support services. This is, you know, you're a normal, healthy 20 year old. You just got diagnosed with cancer. I'm sure your world's kind of freaking out. Let's put you with the support group and so on and so forth. Person B is like, ah, there's a mass in your testicle. Looks like it's testis cancer. We need to take it out. I'm booking this surgery on Friday. So you've missed the uh, conversation about the prosthesis. You've missed any pre-removal sperm banking. You've missed the opportunity to like understand what it feels like to be like a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old who got told they have cancer and they're going to go home and, you know, just their world just fell apart. So both of those patients are going to survive. They're going to be cured, but their experience and the impact on their overall life ability to have children, testosterone supplementation, so forth is going to be quite different. Yeah. I think I was somewhere in the middle of those two. I, I don't remember being offered a prosthetic. It's not something that I, I personally was interested in, but I know, um, you know, the psychosocial effects of the orchidectomy as mentioned in your presentation here. I mean, that can lend itself to all kinds of, as you've mentioned earlier, depression and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, the bottom line is a, if you don't know about it, you're not going to ask B it's not my decision to make, you know, person a may really want to, uh, you know, they could be 18 years old and playing varsity football and they feel uncomfortable without a prosthetic. And, the next dude, maybe 45 year olds, but he's been married for 22 years and he has three kids. And he's like, listen, I'm good, but that's not my decision to make. It should be brought up. It's a part of the conversation. It's in the guidelines. And you know, it's again, it's not life and death, but it, it could be very important to a patient. Another uh, note you have here on this slide and, and keep me on track. If I'm jumping all over the place, as we've mentioned, I have brain fog and problem with concentration, but Fear of recurrence. I mean, that's something that really, at least for me, and, you know, re seeing all these people in the support group, I mean, that's something that seems to affect everybody. Absolutely. I mean, we, you know, it's, it is one of the biggest drivers. The whole process is crazy, right? You see a, your primary care, or the ER, you get ultrasound and you see a urologist and they tell you that your testicles coming out. Then you're sitting at home waiting for 
the pathology for seven to 10 days. And then they say, Oh, it's stage one disease. You know, you should be good. We'll check you later in three months. And I mean, during that time, we know on the provider end that you're going to be fine, but you don't know that. And, um, and I think just running through comprehensively the different possible outcomes, how we manage those, making sure that people are kind of crystal clear on the surveillance programs. Those are, those are important, but I think just, you know, acknowledging that this is scary, acknowledging that, you know, you're a young person kind of in the primary life contending with the cancer diagnosis. Some people, you know, their whole life's ahead of them. They've got families, whatever, um, that this is a, a very high stress, anxiety provoking experience, but you're going to be okay. You're not alone. Let's get you plugged in with some support groups so you can talk about it as well. Um, I think that these are, I mean, it's a cancer phenomenon and, and maybe a little bit more acute just because we're dealing with a generally younger population. Yeah. I mean, anecdotally, I, when I first noticed my cancer had metastasized, which was what finally got me to the doctor was I felt like a weird lump in my back. And uh, these past couple of weeks, I've been feeling something similar, uh, what I thought was on the other side. So I had my CT early because I was so nervous and about to get married. I didn't want to, you know, have to wait till after the wedding to figure that out. It ended up being just being like bony sclerosis or something like, I don't know, but happy to hear it wasn't metastasis, but my, you know, your mind plays tricks on you. Totally. I mean, in that first couple of months afterwards, you know, Hey doc, I feel something on the other side or a little twinge in my back. And, you know, I think you've just got to validate it and, work it up properly, you know, there, there is this real anxiety. And I mean, if it's getting to be, you know, a negative impact on a patient's quality of life, you got to dig into that bit, a bit more, but, you know, take it seriously. Remember that again, these are young people going through a cancer diagnosis. Uh, another question from the support group. Uh, this person says, my son did four rounds of VIP chemo inpatient five days, followed by two weeks off four times. I'd be interested to know what long-term toxicity effects he may experience. Yeah. Yeah. So that's an, that's an intense chemotherapy regimen that's typically reserved for people that have either more advanced stage disease or significant lung um, toxicity that, that kind of comes along with it. And uh, it really, so fortunately the side effects don't happen to everybody, um, but they can happen and, and really affect the, the full kind of spectrum of, uh, of disease. I mean, physical, physical functioning, emotional functioning, um, sexual function, global quality of life, feelings of fatigue. Um, so it really can be the, the full gamut. The, the two kind of feared complications, if you will, of, chemotherapy regimens would typically be long-term risk for early heart disease, which we touched upon as well as um, the development of secondary cancers actually as a result of the chemotherapy. So those are going to be kind of the long-term side effects that are associated with a shorter lifespan, if you will but there's a whole host of non-fatal things that can take place. You know, quite commonly we see some degree of hearing loss and that can be tinnitus, which is kind of a buzzing sound. It could be lower high frequency auditory loss. And there's ways to, um, 
manage that. You know, we'd want you to get in to get audiometry testing. So again, it could be blown off like, all right, well, you know, you should be grateful that you're alive. Even if you hear like a buzzing sound for the rest of your life, that's not really okay. You know, we can have patients see it an audiometrist baseline, identify risk factors. And then, you know, if, if there's um, ways to get them in to see, you know, the relevant specialists early on peripheral neuropathy. So numbness, tingling in the fingers and toes, super, super common um, managing those with medications, physical therapy is incredibly important. Raynaud's phenomenon where your fingers get very, very cold sometimes and their kind of responses to normal st- stimuli is, is off. We can work. There's medications that can be helpful. And sometimes even our colleagues in rheumatology can, can help out with that. Um, in, in my land, you know, erectile dysfunction can happen as a side effect of uh, chemotherapy. We talked a bit about blood pressure, cholesterol, which, which can be managed by a primary care physician. The longer term things like diabetes, peripheral vascular disease. I mean, it does kind of go on and again, it doesn't happen to everybody, but if you're not thinking about it, if you're not screening for it, it can creep up on you and become more of a problem or get worse than it ever needed to. Mm. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely a scary topic. I'm thinking about some cupcakes I got in the kitchen right now that I probably shouldn't go eat talking about all these diabetes. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all moderation, right, Steven? I mean, we, we still need to live life. It can't be that the remainder of your life is solely focused on preventing something that may or may not happen, but uh, you know, it's, it's going to be trying to take, take some stock. And I mean, in many ways, I think taking ownership makes you an active participant. You know, so many times it's things that are done to you. We're removing your testicle. We're giving you chemotherapy. We're doing an RPL and D you're administered radiation. But if it's like, well, what can I do from like a diet exercise, nutrition, supplement, sleep hygiene perspective. Now, instead of just being a passive bystander, like, is this, this may or may not happen to me. You can have an active role and your cancer outcomes. And I think that can be empowering actually. Let's talk about kind of mitigation. I mean, is there anything anybody can do during treatment to kind of lessen these side effects? Are there certain foods that you can eat? Are there certain like exercises like yoga or anything? Like are there certain, you know, certain things that people can do? Yeah. Absolutely. It's it's a great question. So, um, you know, despite the fact that most people receiving systemic therapy for their metastatic testicular cancer are young and healthy, they are affected. I mean, you know, people lose weight, they get nauseated, they lose, they can't exercise because they feel crummy. And we actually recently published a paper showing that, you know, if you do, if you look at the pre-chemo CT scans, and the post chemo CT scans, we can see like loss of muscle mass and, and that can actually be associated with increased complications if you require surgery, most commonly RPLND after, um, after chemotherapy. So the point, so first off, it's very real. You know, this is real chemotherapy for anybody that's been through it. You don't need me to tell you that. And um, it, it's a little bit variable what people can do. Obviously, if you feel nauseated and like totally tuckered out and you've got forbid you've had a complication, like going to the gym and exercising is not going to be like a viable thing to do. 
but engaging a nutritionist through cancer center support services and a diet and an exercise um, physiologist would be excellent. Um, you know, not always feasible. I mean, you've already got chemo and this and lab tests and doctor's visit and like, you know, tag on like a couple of other visits with it being available virtually now is, is quite good. Um, I am hesitant to kind of prescribe off the cuff. Here's what you should and should do, shouldn't do, but there's been some, you know, decent data that like Mediterranean diets are generally associated with, um, with general overall health. If you can do it and tolerate it some degree of, you know, both cardiac and weight bearing exercises typically beneficial, um, you know, medical and non-medical kind of management of common things like nausea or um, decreased appetite can be certainly done with the medical oncologist. And then many times there's integrative and complementary doctors that can run through kind of non-traditional um, things. Um, I'm not an expert on it. Again, I don't want to make kind of prescriptive recs here, but um, you know, there are licensed professionals that, that run through uh, general health and certainly cancer directed ways to mitigate some of the side effects of chemotherapy. And generally, as long as it's done well, I'm on board and then sleep hygiene, you know, this is not something that we always think about, but your body's kind of going through it. It's it's, you could liken it to like training for a half marathon or something like that. You want to be rested. Um, I mean, sometimes even like supplements like melatonin can be helpful. Warm showers, 30 to 60 minutes before going to bed, keeping the temperature down, weighted blankets. Like, I mean, these are all like small things um, ultimately, but cumulatively, you know, if you get like a good eight to nine hours of rest during chemo, your next day may be very different if you got five to six hours of interrupted sleep. Um, so I'm not an expert on this and this may be like a topic that I would actually direct a patient towards our podcast, which has some integrative and complementary approaches to cancer care. Um, I have no kind of vested interest in that. It's more informational. Interesting. Yeah. It's just not really related, but kind of related is I have a friend who's uh, going through uh, BEP right now. And he, he actually read on the internet somewhere that he could eat yogurt to like boost his white blood cells and, uh, ended up not working. And now he's pushed back a week, but there's just a lot of like myths on the internet. So I was just curious. Yeah. I mean, the amount of information and misinformation that exists is, is really pretty alarming. I mean, you know, what high dose baking soda, gazillions of milligrams of vitamin C. I mean, you name it, I've heard it. Uh, I think there's absolutely a very well-defined role for Western allopathic medicine, chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. I also think there's a emerging role for complementary and alternative ways to kind of make the process smoother. I mean, yoga, um, acupuncture, acupressure, breathing, whatever. I mean, there's nearly certainly some value in those, but I don't think it's, you know, if you have metastatic testicular cancer, you could do yoga until you're blue in the face. I don't think that's going to cure you. So um, I hope I've conveyed the point that I think there's some value of being an active participant in your, in your cancer care, but it, it shouldn't be one or the other. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, like kind of, 
radiation was kind of more common before now kind of moving away from that. Where does like the, what does the future look like? Yeah, I think really the future focus, which is super exciting is going to be making sure that we actually get the disease state perfectly right. And I think that the most promising paradigm shifting next big thing in testis cancer is going to be the use of microRNAs. So anybody with testicular cancer is going to be familiar with their AFP, their HCG, and their LDH, which are the lab tests that are typically drawn along with CT scans and so forth. And they're good, but they're not perfect. So microRNAs are a new class of molecules that are actually measurable in the blood. And if you actually walk through the kind of whole testis cancer journey, so let's just say a patient comes in, before their testicle has been removed, if you do some blood and ran a microRNA test on it, which is something that my lab does, it's going to predict whether you have cancer with about 95% certainty. That's exciting. Now, importantly, the most common stage is, so you get your testicle removed. Okay, you have testicular cancer. We get CT scans from top to bottom, and we say, okay, there's no obvious evidence of cancer cells that have metastasized. But we know that ultimately about 30% of those patients are going to show up with some cancer cells down the way. So these blood tests are going to be quite promising to inform at that initial time frame who's likely to have a cancer or not. So now instead of saying, hey, let's wait, and you may recur, and if you recur, you're probably going to require chemotherapy and you may require surgery, we may be able to say, okay, you've got a few microRNA molecules in your blood. We think there's some cancer cells that have metastasized. We can do any of these relatively less intensive interventions and save you from recurring uh, in, in kind of a big way, requiring everything down the way. Another example would be, you know, if we give you chemotherapy and those microRNA levels start going up, we can say early on, like, okay, this chemotherapy regimen is not working. Let's switch gears. Or, hey, you got your chemotherapy, things are looking good. We don't need to do CT scans anymore. We can just follow you with microRNA, single blood tests, you know, either good to go or something we need to do. So it's it's really poised to be a game changer, in my opinion. And, um, and we can just start personalizing things in a way that we haven't been able to do previously. Yeah, and I mean, I guess you'll never not have toxicities, but the more specific you can be per person, I guess that would, you know, decrease the potential for unnecessary toxicities. Amen. Yeah. We want to, we don't want to under treat. We don't want to over treat. We want to perfectly treat so that we're not exposing people that are cured to the toxicity of treatment so that we're not under treating people that need treatment. And, um, you know, we're reserving the right treatment for the right patient population. When we talk about, and this is just kind of a general medical question, but you see like these drug commercials and they list everything under the sun as a side effect. So how, like in the process of determining these toxicities for testicular cancer, how are you guys as a medical community able to say that, you know, A, B, and C are related to the treatments? Yeah. Yeah. So excellent questions. And, you know, as these treatments have evolved and developed and been finessed over the last, uh, you know, 50 years or so, there's been really a tremendous amount of work in terms of clinical trials. 
So let's just say you have two groups of people with similar disease characteristics and there's two regimens that seem promising. We'll actually randomize the patient to receive regimen A or regimen B and then we'll have them fill out kind of questionnaires. We'll also check labs and say, you know, in group A, 30% of people got peripheral neuropathy. In group B, 15% of patients got peripheral neuropathy. So at least for that side effect, here's the incidence and here's which regimen seems more or less promising. So it starts out with small studies where we, you know, we take a group of people that are, you know, oftentimes advanced stage disease we give them newer therapies and we say, okay, that was reasonably well tolerated. Then we give it to slightly larger groups. And then we say, let's try to see if this is going to be the new standard of care and test it in clinical trials. So this is something that people are like consenting to being a part of. The short answer is yes. So, so largely what I've described is work that's been done to date. So, you know, if you came into my clinic today, I'd say, Hey, Steven, you know, we think you have a testis cancer, and in addition to the AFP and the ACG and the LDH, is it okay if we draw an extra five cc's of blood to check for a microRNA? Can you sign this consent form? So we're not at the point yet where we can make a clinical decision uh, based on a microRNA status. There's a lot that has to be done just to make sure those labs are reproducible, they're verified, that we figured out what the right cutoffs are for cancer present, yes, no. And it's, it's a Herculean amount of work. Um, but we've got great partners. We've got a great community, a lot of people working on it, working together. And, um, you know, we're, we're getting closer and closer to prime time. Sweet. Um, we're close to 45 minutes. I'm all over the place cause I'm, I'm tired and my brain doesn't work. Is there anything that I need to ask about that you want to get across? Steve, I think you did great. Um, you know, I, it really boils down to a couple of things. It's just making sure that you're, being seen by providers that are familiar and comfortable with the disease. I see enough patients to understand the nuances. Um, at that point, you're already kind of plugged into a system that knows about all of the short, intermediate, and long-term toxicities. And then, um, you know, just a, a hats off to the community, the whole testis cancer community, starting with our patients who are also always pushing the envelope to, to improve the outcomes. And, um, you know, again, I think as these newer technologies, as these newer lab tests trickle in, they're going to be available at high volume centers. So find somebody that knows what they're doing. That's important. And, um, you know, you also don't have to be a, a passive bystander in your care, you know, get out there, be healthy, take care of yourself. And that's massively critically important. Another question I just thought of, um, you mentioned seeing relevant providers, whether it be like the nutritionist or, or whoever, um, is there a certain kind of, do you have kind of a list of maybe providers that people should look for if they don't already have one as a testicular cancer survivor, a patient looking ahead at um, being a survivor? Yeah. I mean, you know, it's geographically, fortunately, there are centers and cancer centers that, that really do um, prioritize survivorship. It's actually becoming like a whole new arm of, cancer treatment as we've gotten better and better and, you know, pediatric cancers, testicular cancers, breast cancers, we have these long-term survivors are, are more and more common. So um, really it's not like, I mean, of course there's tremendous places like Indiana and Memorial Sloan Kettering, 
Um, but any reasonable cancer center should be familiar with survivorship issues and be able to plug you in with a, um, even like a oncology specific primary care provider that's going to be on top of this. Okay. So it's not something that like I or another patient should go out of our way to find a cardiologist. Like if, but more so like if we're showing signs of, you know, heart issues, our oncologist should recommend us somebody who is familiar with, with what's going on. The short answer is yes. I mean, if you're in with the primary care physician, you let them know that, listen, I'm a testis cancer patient and they should be familiar with, um, you know, your, your predisposition to certain conditions. And even as a part of their standard screening annually, you know, checking blood pressure, cholesterol, so on and so forth, you're ahead of the game. Cool. Um, I think that just about does it. Dr. Bagrodia, thank you for being on the podcast. And most importantly, thank you so much for being a friend of TCAF. Thank you, Stephen. Always a pleasure. Good to see you. And, um, you know, if anything comes up, feel free to reach out. Thank you. For more information and resources for your testicular cancer journey, visit testiculacancerawarenessfoundation.org. You can also follow us on social media at Testis Cancer. We're on Facebook at Testicular Cancer Awareness Foundation.